Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Very good. Everybody say, on the water. So in the month of June here, and uh, it's my honor and privilege to be able to kick, uh, or excuse me, uh, finish out our series, I should say, uh, for June called On the Water. Now, On the Water obviously is indicative of the miracles and the sovereignty Jesus expresses in miracles on the water. And uh, it's been a fun month working through different miracles that we see within the Gospels, and today I'm going to look at another miracle, but maybe in a way that we don't often think is a miracle. And if you have a Bible, go with me to Luke chapter 7. If you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, do we have any remaining message cards? We do not. So you're out of luck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You can follow along on the screens, but also uh, if you have a phone or a smart device, uh, you can click on the YouVersion app and you'll see the message uh, there as well. Luke chapter 7 is our teaching text for today. And I'm excited about what God is going to speak to us. And I want to welcome those that are streaming live as well. And pray God speaks to you right where you're at. Thank you so much, media team, for all that you do to make that happen each week. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 36, a stretch of text. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this perfume was paid for by by prostitution. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she, notice, she, the Bible says, began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her own hair and she bent down to his feet and kissed them and poured perfume on the feet. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to the house saw this, he said to himself, notice that, that's inner dialogue, that's what we call inner judgment. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would Surely know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I got something to tell you. (laughs) He said, tell me, Lord. Tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay the money lender back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them, Simon, will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had more debt, the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Jesus said, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, this is a powerful question. Do you see this woman? What a question. Uh, yeah, she just came busting into the room. But obviously they might not have seen her. He said, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head or in Georgia oil, but she has poured perfume on my head. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her as, great, or her, as her great love has shown, but whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, hey, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray? Father, for the moments we have, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We pray conviction of your word would just run deep and the word would run swiftly. And we thank you that Jesus, that you in Jesus, God, have risen to show us great compassion. We're recipients of your love this day. Help us see Jesus today. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody sit. Sometime in the year 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to a bookshelf in his city and he took out a copy of the King James Version of the Bible. He took out a pair of scissors, he took out some glue, and he took out some tape. Deeply disturbed by what he saw in the religion of his day, he felt like he could, if you will, improve in some sense on the Gospels. So with scissors and glue, he meticulously began to cut out sections of the gospel. Let me show you the image. He took out sections of the gospel, particularly the sections of the gospel that he then would piece together called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now he removed all the miracles. 
He went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and removed all the miracles of Jesus. He removed any mention of Jesus' divinity. So any claim to divinity he would remove including all the resurrection accounts and all the passages that portray Jesus as divine. And he said this, next page, or next slide you could see. Okay, you can see he cuts them out and pastes them together. And he said this, quote, I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines. Signed, the third president of the United States of America. So Thomas Jefferson was disturbed by the picture of Jesus in his day. So with scissors, he cut away the dunghill of the Bible to reveal the diamonds of Jesus that he was able to discern. This, from this point forward, became commonly known as the Jefferson Bible. They'll show you an image of that. Now, you may be sitting there today like me saying, oh, man, that, that's a little crazy. Like thinking you can take scissors to the inherent, inerrant, infallible word of God. Man, that sounds crazy. Like, how does he have the courage to do that? Like, I would never do that. I would never take out passages that I don't like. But if you were to study the passage of Scripture that you normally read, as I do, you are probably guilty, as am I, of subconsciously, not with our scissors, but the scissors in our mind, cutting out sections of the Scripture that we don't like and sections of the Scripture that we don't feel and turning the Bible in the Western world into our individual promise book. We, as Westerners, given into our radical individualism, we want to turn the history of the oracles of God into our personal little promise book of the bits that we like that make Jesus the kind of person we want him to be. Listen, we all don't want a Jesus that makes us in his image. We want to make a Jesus that's made in our image. We want a God who looks like us, right? Agrees with us. Tim Keller says this. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Right? Let me say it this way. You can safely assume, okay? You can safely assume you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Okay? If God votes like you vote and has the same political views you have and hates the people you hate, you can pretty safely assume you have put your hands on the face of God and changed his mirage. You have made him in to your own image. I just want to say today from the outset, if Jesus has kept all your rules, you're probably your own Jesus, okay? If Jesus has never surprised you, he's always done what you thought he should do, and particularly vote the way you should vote, and the way you desire, the way you see this issue, you are probably your own Jesus. Because let me just tell you, folks, the thing about the real Jesus and the real Gospels is that he will straight up mess you up to save you from yourself. He will mess you up to save you from you. So the question being begged in our culture is, who is Jesus? Which Jesus are we following? Let me say it this way. What is it like to be his disciple? Whose disciple are you? Can I just be honest, folks? It is hard to find out how to follow Jesus in these crazy times. Anybody just agree to that? Do you agree with that statement? It is difficult. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what Jesus would say to the situations we see. It's hard to even ask the question sometimes, does the Bible even address or speak to the major issues we are wrestling with in our culture? So what I want to do from the outset here is, can I give you for a few moments some crazy contradictions that we currently see in our culture? I'm going to give these unbiasedly. I'm just going to give them to you as observations, and you take them, right? These are the amazing contributions we have right now in our cultural moment. We have the rise of gay rights and the rise of the alt-right at the exact same time. We have the first African-American president in the United States history followed by the election of Donald J. Trump. Okay? 
Think about the contradiction. There is a decline in the church in the West and the rise of nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, people who claim no religious affiliation. And at the same time, we have the rise of megachurches and the rise of celebrity pastors. A pastor is told to step down because he's in his early 20s and he makes a move sexually on a 17-year-old girl, and that is heartbreaking and that is tragic and should not be the case. Yet at the same time in Hollywood, there is a movie called Call Me By My Name, and it's a film that's celebrating a teenage boy who's underage having sexual relationship with another boy who is in his 20s. And this happens at the same time. We have the Me Too movement that's rushing through our world to every part of the globe that I have been abused to. And yet at the exact same moment, Shades of Grey, which is picturing a movie of a sexual domination of a man over a female time and time again, is the fastest and largest selling book among women of human history at the exact same time. We've got Me Too women speaking out and the same women spending money watching, reading all of the dominance spiritually, sexually, physically, emotionally of men over women. We have the rise of hate speech and we have the defending of free speech at the exact same time. We have the normalization and obsession of media and technology in our life and yet at the same time we have a desire to get rid of it and to be done with it. Is there anyone in this room or in this nation who can understand what's actually happening in our world right now? Can we really understand? By the way, I just so I know I'm speaking to the right people, do you all feel the tensions of these every day? You don't? You do. You feel the tensions of this, right? Like you feel. Feels like things, y'all, are going from one side to the other. It used to be like they would do it month by month, then it was week by week, then it's day by day, now it's hour by hour. It's hour by hour. We feel the pendulum swing in our Western culture. So a lot of people, when they look at Jesus, particularly believers, they ask, how can I be his disciple? Because they feel like they can't get Jesus out of the dusty shores of Galilee and enter him into modern Atlanta. And they want him into modern Atlanta because we want him to sort this mess out. But we have a disconnect. Well, today I have just two simple goals for today. Now listen, I I want you to hear me very clearly. My first goal is for us to, to have a framework to try to understand our cultural moment. Okay? So, so I preached you happy last week. Today is total nerd sermon. I'm foreshadowing it is total nerd time. So you're going to have to put on your mind. You're going to have to think. Okay? We're going to think critically about what's happening in our culture. And then, that's the first goal. Okay? And, and just so you have some kind of framework around it. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to try, although I know I can't do it completely, I'm going to try to present this not on one side. I'm just going to try to pre- present it as an observation, knowing that you may know exactly where you stand on this issue, but there may be someone right on your road that stands actually opposite than you on that issue. So I'm going to present them as neutrally as possible, as observations. That's the first goal. And then the second goal is I want to introduce into that a clarified conversation of the scandalous compassion of Jesus. Because I believe the only way forward for us in the Western world is through the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. So let me start first and foremost. Number one, how do I follow Jesus in our confusing cultural moment? How do I follow Jesus? Now I'm going to borrow quite a bit in this first section from Charles Taylor, who perhaps is the father of modern thought, particularly as it relates to the secular age. Wrote a book years ago called The Secular Age. Phenomenal. Phenomenal understanding of what's happening in Western culture. I'm going to start with what Charles Taylor says, the four things that have drastically changed. There are four things that have drastically changed in the Western world, and it makes it very hard for us as believers to find a way of conversation with the culture and to to figure out our discipleship around those values. There's been a very distinct change, number one, in the understanding of ourselves. Everybody say ourselves. A distinct change in the understanding of ourselves. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a person in the world today? We are living in what Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity, authenticity, I should say. Now listen, when I say the age of authenticity, we often use that as a very positive term in the church, right? Like you need to be authentic so people can connect with you. I'm not presenting that this way. I'm just telling you what he calls it. What he calls American culture today is the age of authenticity, which is what? Where the supreme value in our culture is you being your authentic self. Let the chips fall where they may. You don't, you don't 
allow any superimposition from any other norm around you to, to challenge you, to change you, or to mold you in a certain way. The, the thought father of, of modern radical individualism is a guy named John Stuart Mill. This is what he says. In the age of authenticity, he said, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. The individual is sovereign. In other words, so Charles Taylor goes on and says this. He says, I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century. That each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. Watch this. And that it is important to find out and live out one's own as against, at all costs, surrendering one's personal identity, right? A, a conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside. Over my dead body am I going to move in the way that society tells me to do? This is the age of the authentic self. Watch. Whether the previous generation or religious or political authority. Charles Taylor, you have put the nail on the head. I mean, he's hit the nail on the head in this reality. This is the age of the authentic self. In other words, we want to try to get rid of all impositions. So five things he says defines the age of authenticity. I'm going to hit them quickly. Number one, external expectations are different. Y'all, this is a very fascinating shift in Western culture. We no longer bow to external expectations. Now, I know that my anthropology could probably do some dusting up, but I'm not quite sure if there has been a society on the face of the planet that hasn't established some, some set of external norms and then championed that society to conform to those shared cultural values. I'm sure there might be one, but I don't know of a society that did not place before God, the people, not God's people, all people. This is our cultural values, and then we champion those values for you to come around. Even the Greeks, classical Greeks had what they call the classical Greek virtues. Even the church through the 2,000 years of history, Christians have always had at least a minimum of faith, hope, and love. And they champion the believers to come around faith, hope, and love. But in our modern culture, any external virtue that's imposed upon you feels like oppression to be thrown off. So when we're dealing with young people now, any expectation externally that's been created from a previous generation or been created by the world you and I live in feels like oppression to them. And so they do all they can to cast that off. So culture, watch this, exists not to get you to take whatever disorder you have and chip away at it so that you conform to the culture around you. No, no. Now society is a blank canvas for you to express whatever happens to be in you. That's what society is. It's a blank canvas. And as long as I'm not hurting somebody, I can have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. I can engage in whatever behavior, repertoire behavior I want to engage in because society is a blank canvas. It's about me expressing who I am. It's about me making a statement. From, that is a major shift in our culture. But then secondly, societal norms. All values seem to be up in the air now. There are no societal norms. All values are up for shopping, right? And every dynamic, I don't want to get too engaged here, but every dynamic seems to have behind it or be infused with a sense of power or a suspicion of power or a suspicion or a claim of oppression or a claim of victimhood or a claim of I've not been heard or a claim of you've left us out or a claim of, oh, we have not been the dominating ones. So any sort of norm societal that gets pushed on us comes with the assumption that you're trying to control me. Now that goes from big values all the way down to mask. Oh, you don't put on a mask. This thing ain't about mask. This is about freedom. You, you don't you understand this is about freedom they're trying to control you right because we won't put on a little piece of cloth right over our mouths right we immediately because of the culture we're in feel like any norm to be placed on us is a total attempt to control us that's a shift in the understanding of ourselves also we're wanting freedom from previous generations are we not bill maurer who loves christians it's supposed to be a joke. If you've seen his HBO show, he hates Christianity. He, a couple years ago, had the two boys who survived the Parkland shooting on it. And I was going to show this clip, but I can't because the overwhelming swear word, it's a little too strong. But these two boys, 10-minute clip, you can find it. At the end of the clip, these are high school boys, teenagers, who are making this rally cry to Americans about gun violence. 
we need to end all gun possession, right? And they get down to the very end of this interview, and and it's mind-boggling. It's so insightful about the culture that is being raised up. And this is what one of the young men does. He looks into the camera at America, and he said, I would like to sincerely thank you, America, for your apology to all previous generations for completely effing up the world. And I want to thank you for allowing my generation the privilege of repairing it. Now, what did he just say? Everything we've received from a previous generation has effed us up. So the shift in culture is that all the young people now feel like nothing that the older can give me is anything but disaster. And the the HBO show applauded. I mean, people were standing up, young and old. Oh, yeah. That's all the previous generation gave you. They effed it up. I mean, it's crazy. That's a shift in our culture. His view is the only thing you've given us is disaster, but thank God we're going to figure this out. So there's this also this pushing off of any religious authority, right? We, we don't, as a whole, accept religious values, and we certainly don't take the political values in the same weightiness. So we're left with this, again, age of authenticity. I'm trying to present them in an unbiased way, just as observations. There's where we are. Jonathan Grant in his book called Divine Sex, which I've quoted many times from this pulpit, great, great text. This is what he says about the modern authenticity. He says, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must cooperate or resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do as a society is to conform to some moral code that's imposed on us from the outside by society, by our parents, by the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition on us would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or it must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite. So, so... In our cultural imagination, which would be like our TV, our movies, um, you could call them our educational systems, and I know this is controversial, maybe even in some of the ways we legislate things, the cultural imagination is constantly trying to present the vision of the good life. The billions of dollars spent on marketing in our culture comes from the ages of 4 to 14. That's who they target. All of the money is spent from four to 14-year-olds to try to do all that they can to indoctrinate and to say and feel you this kind of vision of the good life that will thrill your heart if you'll just be true to yourself and, and, the, and the happiness you long for is just being true to yourself. So listen, you don't listen to what other people tell you. You don't listen to what others say about you. You just be true to yourself. So we live in an age where our understanding of ourselves has fundamentally shifted. We could go on for days about this, but we don't have time. Here's the second shift. This happened in the age of authenticity. This shifted our understanding of others. Everybody say others. Y'all, we are a connected world, aren't we? I was in youth camp this week, and I I said this to these teenagers, and it like blew their mind. You could see it like explode, right? Maybe it won't blow your mind like it did theirs. but, But think about this. Like I remember when I was in high school. And when I was growing up in high school, my vision of society was basically, and this is before the thing called the internet, which kind of changed the world a little bit, and cell phones, which kind of changed the world a little bit. This is before internet and cell phones. My vision of my scope of possibility in living was my high school, Saturday Daisy High School. And then I had a little bit broader horizon of Red Bank High School because it was an attractive girl in there named Meredith Ann Robertson. Okay? So the scope of my existence was this high school and that high school. I mean... And that was the broadest of possibility for me. Like, what else was there? Like, people say, well, you didn't think about the Syrian refugees? I didn't even know where Syria was. I never even heard of it. I was never connected to Syria. It was a dot on a map. I felt no connection and no understanding towards it. But now, y'all, we are globally connected, and we feel like we have an obligation to everybody and every societal issue. You, as a human, weren't meant to take that on. People send me stuff yesterday. You see what's happened in other countries and that contributes to my anxiety more. I, as a human created by God, cannot adequately be connected to everyone and everything. I won't make it. I won't make it. So the possibilities of the anxiety-ridden culture we are is because we're so deeply connected and we feel like we have an obligation to say something to every issue. And everybody right now wants to be the mouth of Jesus and nobody wants to be the hands and feet, right? Because me and the mouth is real easy. You can do it on social media. You can do it in conversation. But to actually embody it, it's something different. So we feel this obligation like I have to say something. 
Y'all, we used to live incredibly local lives, and now we have stronger connections to strangers we've never met than the people who are around us every day. That is a disaster and shift. That is a major shift. Major shift. We're connected to everything everywhere. And, and, and again, I just want to give this observation. You see this connected to our care of people, for our treatment of people we've never met before. Let me, let me give you an example. No judgment again. This is no judgment. Our default posture as humans is inclusion. We want to include people. Okay? That's our default posture. So out of total curiosity, I had zero in the first gathering, but maybe we do have a lonesome soul in this gathering. How many of you have sat down and you have, just out of curiosity, you've read word for word President Trump's immigration policies? You've read them all. I didn't think so. But if I ask the next question, how many of you were angry about them and how certain Syrians and those that were at our border for the last two years have been treated? Oh, don't. I know you wouldn't do it. I know you wouldn't raise your hand. I know you wouldn't, but you, but you do internally. Now, now, think about that. You've not read them, but you're angry with them. Why? Because our default possession, based upon our connection, is we think, I wouldn't want to be that kid away from his mama. And if we have the ability as a country to help them, why wouldn't we help them? But yet we haven't read the policies. You see what I'm saying? We have this default inclusive reality that we want to connect with people. We understand other people. And yet there is this intersectionality to the issues that we face of justice that feel and, and we see all the ways that poverty and, and, and oppression and coercion are working together. So we feel in many ways that life is divided into two camps, the oppressed and the oppressor. So the understanding of others has totally shifted. Here's the third thing has shifted, our shift in authority, right? I mean, this is a major shift. How we view power and those who have the right to wield that power. Now, y'all, think about our founding of our nation, okay, real quick. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, we left, my wife and I, we did a trip to Washington, D.C. after Easter, and no kids. Praise God, hallelujah. And so we, and we're both history buffs, so we just, you know, make our way through D.C. I love it. And uh, so we were going through D.C., and we're reading all, of, you know, and, and I need multiple days in each museum, in each Smithsonian, right? Because um, I'm reading all the plaques and going through. And listen, I'm not here to try to debate whether or not the founding fathers of this nation were deists or Christians. I have a personal opinion. I think they were deists and not true disciples, but nonetheless, you may do. That's, that's fine. I think they were deists, but let me tell you what you can't deny. You cannot deny that they founded this nation on biblical language. And if you don't believe me, go to other countries and read their founding documents and get a little contrast. Okay, our, our ancestors at least believed that, that the word of God and believing the word of God was a good thing. That, that there would be health and prosperity as we submit to the word of God. That's the truth. And one of the ways for the last 250 years that believers have understood authority is something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, what is the Wesleyan quadrilateral? It is a four-point hierarchy to inform our understanding of authority. So here's how people have thought about authority in America for the last few hundred years. You see, first, you have the Word of God. This is the revealed Word of God. If I'm going to find where I stand on an issue, I've got to go first and foremost to the Word. Once I see what the Word says, I then have church tradition. You know what that means? That means that, that believers have lived for 2,000 years in some kind of context around the world, and they've always done work to try to understand, and they now present to this body of work. So when we show up on the scene, we don't have to start from square one. We can take the body of work that the church tradition gives us, and we can put it to practice. And then what happens? Then we move to reason, which is our critical thinking and, 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 and kind of reality or critical thought and process to come to a conclusion. And then we have personal experience. Now, look at me, church. I would like to put forth today that what we've done in America is we have completely reversed the order of authority in our lives and have turned this upside down. So watch this. So instead of, now people start with their personal experience and then they have a thoughtful approach to something that's going on and then they're completely ignorant of how the church responded to this in the past. Completely ignorant of church history. Completely ignorant of how 
The people before us have dealt with this issue, and then they're more ignorant of what the Bible teaches us. So they're like this, well, man, I don't know what the Bible says, and you know, and I don't, who cares about the church, man? They've been championing slavery, and they killed a lot of people in the 13th century with the Crusades, and, and you know, I, I don't care, and, 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 but, but, but here's what psychology says, right? Now they're going to, to reason. Here's what, uh, here's what sociology says, and then here's where I believe. Here's what I believe. So watch this. Any appeals to authority, have been turned on its head. So I'm going to show you real quick, just two quick pictures. This is the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the scripture, then informs tradition, then reason, then experience, right? Another way we can see this is concentric circles. So historically, Christians have seen scripture as the overarching theme that goes to reason, or excuse me, tradition, then goes to reason, then goes to personal experience. Now we have flipped that on its head. And I experience this all the time, y'all. I've told you before, if I get up here and I say, to the 21st century world. This is what the word of God says. People are like, but then if I get up here and I'll be like the other morning in my personal experience, I got up early before the daylight and I got my Bible out and had a personal devotion with Jesus. And I turned on Hillsong United and the Lord began to speak to me through the Bible. Here's what I felt like God's, people are like, oh yeah. Why? Because we value personal experience over scripture. We flip-flopped authority on its head. Here's the fourth thing. There's also a shift in religion or the way we perceive religion. So there's a shift in authority, but then there's a shift in religion. Religion, how is it perceived in our culture? We talk about being a post-Christian culture, and in many ways we are. But can I just define that real quick? Did you know post-Christian culture doesn't mean that there are no Christians? It means that, that we are in a Christ-haunted culture. I know we don't like to think of it this way, but we don't understand how insane the rest of the world thinks we are that we insist our president has a personal relationship with Jesus. They don't see that. They think it's crazy that we think Donald Trump has to become a baby Christian to lead our nation because they don't see those things integrated. So they look at us and think, are you serious? He has to have the social advantage of being a Christian in order for you to give the support. But look, now we've shifted. Whereas you used to be able to hold a Bible in a previous generation and take a picture and that was a societal advantage, it's no longer an advantage to be a Christian in the Western world. So you have a shift and a collision of two separate generations' values where now no longer is it socially an advantage to be a believer. Now no longer is it an advantage for you to say, I am a follower of Christ. It is a world that Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. You know what that means? It means that people aren't bothered by questions of existential reality anymore, of death. Like what happens when you die or is there an afterlife? What people are today, they're like, dude, I don't really care about eternity. Like, is anybody going to New Orleans this week and how much beer? You know, like, I mean, that's all they're thinking about. The people now are thinking about now, now, not eternity. Not only that, but we live in a disenchanted world, don't we? So through the Gospels, Jesus went about casting out demons, but in the modern culture, we've went about casting out God. We're totally disenchanted. We have exorcised, oh, exorcised God out of culture. So what's the result in these shifts? Well, several, several results in the church. Here's the first one. The church has moved from the center to the fringe. We're no longer the center of society. The church is no longer the center. In fact, most of the cities were built in America with the architecture of the city around the church. You couldn't have buildings taller than the cathedrals. So now, in this shift in Western world, the church has moved from the center to the fringe, right? Also, we've moved from a sense of acceptance of public faith to private faith, right? You can't have public faith anymore. You have to have private faith I hate that this example is so charged, but it's the best one that's fresh on our mind. Last election season, there was a very high-profile candidate, presidential candidate, who was asked, what's your opinion on abortion? And he said, personally, being a Catholic, I am opposed to abortion, but I think publicly women have the right to choose. Now, did you just see what he did? He had a personal sense of faith, but to separate it from the way that you implement this in public life is the only way his faith would be tolerated in America. And he knows that. So if he would have said, no, I don't think women have the right to choose, they would have said and pointed at him, and he would have lost votes, that you are trying to legislate morality. Which, by the way, can I take a time out real quick? That's the only thing you can legislate, church. All you can legislate is morality. So when people say you're legislating morality, that's all you can legislate. You can't legislate anything else. And so they would have said, you're legislating morality right so he understood if I'm going to win I got to have a private faith 
But it cannot make its way into the public sector. It cannot make its way into the way I feel that this should be instigated. We've moved from being seen as strange. Oh, you Christians with your whole resurrection preaching. You believe this guy got up out of the grave to now we're a threat. We're not just strange. We're a threat. We're seen as a threat. So the book... By the way, great required reading here called Good Faith by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, released last year. They did research on what it means to be a Christian in, the, in our world today. And here's what they came to. The number one way Christians are defined by the world is either we're way irrelevant or we're fully extreme. So the way the world views Christians is what you say has nothing to bear on my everyday living or whoa, 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 I am totally <laughs> surprised by that extreme belief. And we've moved from tolerance to penalization, right? So it used to be that let's do and get along in spite of our differences, but where we're heading now is the church is being heavily penalized. Now, I'm not a prophet. I don't think anybody could see this, but I would just go ahead and say, I think within the next 10 years, higher Christian education institutions are moving into terrible crisis due to the government will not give them any more funds. Why? Because you're going to be penalized for being the church now, not just tolerated. And that's the way we're moving. That's where our culture's headed. Now, those are just observations. So what do we do? How do we become faithful disciples in that culture? Let me just make sure I'm on the page. Do you all feel all of this, by the way? Yeah? We feel this? Okay. The result is what Taylor calls the cross pressures of the buffered self. What a phrase. The cross pressures of the buffered self. Okay, what is that? So you think yourself, you think of yourself right now with all these currents going on in society and pressures and their shifting frameworks and you just put up a wall, right? Because you feel them. You feel the pressures, the buffers are getting bigger and so what you're like, oh man, look man, I just believe on Jesus and I believe in his death and resurrection and, and I'm trying to be kind. And somebody's like, what do you think? You know, like, oh, I pay the pa- I mean, we pay the pastor, let him do that, let him talk about it. What do you think? What do you think? And here we are. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The cross pressures of the buffered self to have to be able to say and speak to any and every current and culture that we find. So we feel ourselves like this. A couple of general observations. The result of this for older folks, now I'm not trying to overgeneralize, I understand there's exceptions. But the, the, the general consensus for the older folks is they tend to have some level of what I call fear about the cultural shifts all at once. It feels like an onslaught to them. And there is a fear and there is a self-preservation because the world they grew up in has been taken from them without consent. It's been forced upon them without elected officials in court legislation and they're moving this country, them young people are moving this country in a direction I don't know anymore. So watch, the result of that is a posture of condemnation. I know there are exceptions. I understand that. Very complex. But for the most part, their extreme is condemnation. Now we're going to condemn. And y'all, you can raise a lot of money on fear and self-preservation. Holy moly. You want to tap into the pockets of Americans? Fear and self-preservation. Ooh, you talking about on the unrest of a day like today? That's how you tap into raise money. And so people, the media plays on those instincts and then they condemn. Now on the other side, you got the younger folks, right? By and large, the cross pressures of the buffered self. And they, if I can say it this way, they doubt everything but doubt. Don't they? I mean, they, they don't have enough doubt in their own doubt, but they doubt, Right? If we could just get them to doubt their doubt, we'd be on our way. But, but they doubt everything but doubt. So, so there's this sense of they don't know what to do, and so they compromise their parents' religion and faith, and they just try to celebrate the humanity of everybody. Okay, yeah, yeah, you just do what you want. As long as it's not hurting anybody, you're good. Awesome, let's celebrate you. Is that amazing? Yeah, oh, yeah, you want to be you? Yeah, if you feel you, you do you. Live your truth. Yep, yep, you live your... So, so watch, watch this. So you got an older generation condemning... And you got a younger generation cross pressures the Bruford self, celebrating. So let me give you an example of this. Let's take human sexuality. 
So if we asked as good Christians, what is sex? And we did all of our good reading and research and we found out what it was for each culture through history. And then we thought theologically about it and we came to our body of information and we here we have, this is human sexuality. Now watch, that's what we call a principle. And then guess what? It's not over. Then you gotta figure out how do I vote for a candidate based on this issue of sexuality? Cross pressures of the buffered self. And then how should pastors form a shared sexual vision for the people of the church? Because the church people are going to date, they're going to get married, they're going to have kids, they're going to adopt kids, they're going to foster kids. And all of the things like we see in the scripture is going to happen in the church. So how do pastors put forth a flourishing vision of human sexuality? And then what happens? How do you fit that into my own life? You, You see this? The cross pressures of the buffered self. And listen to me. As Christians, we cannot succumb and default to these polarizing positions. Church, that's the best thing I'm going to say to you today, by the way. We as the church right now are called to a third option. It is not condemnation and it's not celebration. It's something that I'm putting forth called the scandalous compassion of Jesus. It is a different reality. It's a different heart. It's a different heartbeat. So that we, what is our response to a polarized culture? How do we move forward as disciples? So I would like to put forward the compassion of Jesus. That's the way forward. So look at our text. Look at our text again. It could be titled, by the way, Jesus, a Pharisee and a prostitute. You see this text we just read in Luke 7? Like, I mean, I want that to sink in, by the way. Doesn't this sound like a joke? Like, son of God, a Pharisee and a prostitute went into a bar. You know, it's like, I mean, I mean, like, what is this doing in Scripture? Like, who is this Jesus Like, what is Jesus hanging out with a sinful woman in prostitution? Like, the Pharisees want to eat with him, and the prostitute wants to be around him. Who is this man? So Luke, what he does in verse 37, he gives you what what we call a literary tool of surprise. And he starts to show this. I want you to realize how powerful this is. And he says, something shocking is about to happen. He said, and behold, verse 35, behold. And he goes on in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life saw that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and she came in with an alabaster jar of perfume, stood behind him at his feet weeping. Jesus, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, kissed the feet and poured perfume on them. Y'all, it doesn't matter what time of history you live in, that is awkward. That's awkward population about 15, okay? Welcome to the city of awkward right here. I mean, this is awkward, right? I don't think we understand the scandal of this. Jesus is reclining. He's seated. And this woman comes in and sits behind him with the Pharisees, and she starts weeping on his feet and pouring perfume. By the way, this is not Mary of Bethany. I've heard this passage preached. Like, this is, there's only one of these, okay? You can't get these confused. Mary Bethany does this to anoint his body for burial. This is, not, this is not Mary Bethany. This is a prostitute, okay? And she's pouring out this perfume on his feet. And she takes her hair and wipes Jesus' feet and starts kissing his feet. Y'all, I'm not sure the example I'm about to give you can really relay the scandal of what's happening here. This is the equivalent of a stripper coming in, and while Jesus is eating performing at his feet. You're at a pastor's luncheon. Pastor Craig is hosting it. All the Woodstock pastors are here. I'm set at the table eating. A stripper runs into the back door. She comes and falls at my feet. She begins to perform for me. You are asking, how does this woman know him? And what kind of minister is he? This is scandalous. This is scandalous. And immediately in this passage, you get two temptations. You ready? Instinct number one is to condemn. Instinct number two is to celebrate. Jesus does neither. Instantly, we've got celebration, condemnation. So you got 
Number one, verse 39, the Pharisee saw this and said to himself, that's internal dialogue. He said to himself, what? If this man were a prophet and he knew who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, she is a sinner. So for him, his mentality was holiness was defined by distance from sin. So the holier you were, the further you were away from people like this. This woman could make him unclean. What does she think she's doing coming into a rabbi? She can't do this. This is total taboo. This is unexemplary. She can't do this. This is inappropriate for her. This is sinful. And y'all, it was sinful. She is a lawbreaker. And this guy's supposed to be a holy teacher and he's not distancing himself. He's not rebuking the woman. He's not calling her to repent. He didn't kick her off with his feet. He lets her keep on touching his feet. He, kept, so he, he lets her keep on drying the feet with her tears and, or excuse me, her hair and pouring this on his feet. The instinct, what? What is it? It's to condemn. Get me away from her. That pushed away from acceptance towards a harsh position of condemnation towards others. Now, this is Jesus' response. He gives a story about the nature of forgiveness. <laughs> and then he says this, verse 44. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Wow. Oh, you don't, do you, Simon? See, Jesus saw a woman. Peter saw an issue. Jesus sees people. We see people of color looting. We see categories of sin. Jesus sees people. Peter saw a category of unholiness. Jesus saw a woman. Do you see her? Oh, you don't understand, do you, Peter? You don't see her. Oh, let me tell you. Since I came in, she's not stopped crying on my feet, and you hadn't cried once. Since she came in, you hadn't kissed me one time. She can't stop kissing my feet. Y'all, in the Gospels... You don't see Jesus upset with sinners. You only see Jesus upset with people who don't think they're sinners. The only time Jesus gets upset is when somebody doesn't think they are a sinner. He absolutely loves to be around people who know they're sinners because his grace meets them there. His reservation and judgment is for people who don't think they are sinners. Who don't recognize the woman in front of them, the man in front of them. Now, on the same time, Jesus doesn't fall into the temptation to condemn, but he also doesn't go into the opposite camp of celebration, right? At this point, people are like, yeah. All those on the opposite side like, heck, yeah, I hate those Pharisees. You better give it to them, Jesus. Come on, that woman comes up in and Jesus just says, be on with your bad self and your sexual liberated self. Just take whatever you want to do. Do it however you want to do. I'm good. You good. We're going to peacefully coexist. We're going to cohabitate right here. No, he doesn't do that as well. But that's what, that's what the other camp says. You know what I'm saying? She is in tears because she is so tired of her old life. And she wants a new life. And Jesus calls her a sinner and he forgives her in the same breath. He doesn't condone her behavior and he doesn't condemn her behavior. He doesn't celebrate her behavior. He doesn't speak down to her behavior. He calls her a sinner and calls her out of sin. She is trying to find her way out of a life of sin to find new hope. And Jesus doesn't say, hey girl, no big deal. You do you, I'll do me. We'll just kind of hang together in the same room. No, no, no. He doesn't do that, nor does he condemn. He calls her a sinner and he calls her out of her sin. We have a messed up, distorted view of the purpose of grace. We think grace calls people to continue in their sin. No, Titus 2 and 11 says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. In the Greek, the word all people is literally, it's an epiphany. And what does true grace do, church? Here's what true grace does. It teaches us to say no to ungodly desires. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present generation. So grace not only saves you, it transforms you. Grace is not an apologist for sin. It's the mother and nurturer of holiness. Grace causes me to be changed. It teaches me how to live in the kingdom. So Jesus refuses the temptation to condemn, and he refuses the temptation to celebrate. Oh, yeah, girl, you got free autonomy. Get rid of structure and religion. You don't need that. I'm putting modern-day vernacular, not Jesus' words, okay? In verse 48, he goes on. and Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her many sins will be forgiven her. Who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's the reality. You're thinking, I get it, Craig. Okay, cool. Jesus gives us a third option. And we think, oh yeah, I got it. That's me. No big deal. Didn't even need to come to church today. I'll just be that nuanced person. I'll be that middle road of the compassion. And this is what we think compassion looks like. This is what I made on my computer, so bear with me. 
We think this, oh, I got it, condemnation on one side, celebration on the other side, third way Jesus presents, I'll just be compassionate. But that's not how compassion works. You know how compassion works? I call it the mess of compassion. This is what compassion really looks like in your life, okay? You don't know one day whether you're going to be celebratory or condemned. You don't know one day whether you speak to the issue or speak to the person. You don't know one day whether to keep your mouth quiet and just allow your life and witness and embodied witness to make sense for somebody and not make... The mess of compassion, y'all. Listen to me. Compassion is messy. Why? Because you're dealing with people. You're not dealing with ideology. You're not dealing with a formula. You are dealing with a person. And people are complicated. People are broken. And people don't progress the way we want them to progress. Come on, church folk are crazy. Now, none of you church folk, but I'm talking about people I've pastored in the past, right? Church folk are crazy. They don't move the way you want them to move. They don't sanctify and move in sanctification the way you want them to move in sanctification. So compassion is always a mess. Compassion let sinful people touch you yet at the same time you don't condone their sin compassion allows you to love and yet lets the sinner interrupt but yet love is still there because Jesus is at the Pharisee's house in the first place you see this it's a middle road and this is what Brennan Manning Catholic theologian this is what he says about the mess of compassion I love it he says this he said by entering into human history God has demolished all previous conceptions of who God is and what man's supposed to be. We all of a sudden are suddenly presented with a God who suffers crucifixion. This is not the God of the philosophers who speak with cold attachment about the supreme being. He said a supreme being would never allow spit on his face. Jesus Christ has irreparably changed the world. When preached purely, his word exalts, it frightens, it shocks, and forces us to reassess our whole life. Can I get an Amen. Notice he goes on to say, the gospel breaks our train of thought, shatters our comfortable piety, and cracks open our capsule truths. Come on, Brennan Manning, listen to this language. The flashing spirit of Jesus Christ breaks new paths and trails everywhere. His sentences stand like quivering swords of flame because he didn't come to bring peace but a revolution. The gospel is not a children's fairy tale, but rather a cutting edge, rolling thunder, convulsive earthquake in the world of the human spirit. That's the mess of compassion. So compassion is always going to be a mess, church. Bad news for you. Compassion does not fit into your budget. And compassion won't wait for you to make an appointment with it. If you're thinking about going into ministry, you need to take that and you need to make sure you tell your future spouse, you better know what you're getting into. Compassion will never make an appointment. Never. Compassion will mess you up. It's messy. But I'm proposing it's the only thing that we can move forward in our world today. Not con- condemnation, not celebration, but compassion. Jesus, the Bible says, was moved by compassion. New Testament writers didn't even have a word for this. You know how they had to make up a, a Greek word called splachna? It's an onomatopoeia. Splachna. Right? Sounds like what it is. Have you ever been so viscerally moved, heartbroken by a high school relationship where you just doubled over? No, I'm just kidding. Where you were doubled over? Some of you, you have. It's been hard and you feel that in. That's what Jesus feels for people. Splachna means entrails, large intestine. You feel it down here. Jesus moved with compassion. Spoke to them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus moved with compassion, healed the withered man's hand. Jesus moved with compassion, went out to the two blind men and healed them. Listen, moved with compassion, got him out of the category of the Son of God and made him engage with the mess of humanity. And if we are his people, faithful witnesses in the 21st century, we have to embrace the scandalous compassion of Jesus. In fact, to follow Jesus is to invite his controversy. Look, church. If there is no controversy in your life, I want to ask you, which bit of the gospel have you chopped out? Because to follow Jesus is to embrace controversy. One minute they love Jesus, the next minute they're ready to kill the guy. So what is Jesus? Jesus is about understanding in a culture of offense. Jesus is about reconciliation in a culture of outrage. Jesus is about nuance in a culture of polarization. Don't buy the lie that you have to be far left or far right on every issue presented in America today. There is such thing called nuance and Jesus embodies it. There is what? Jesus is about humanity in a culture of issues. Jesus is about denial, self-denial in a culture of self-fulfillment. Jesus is about listening in a culture of accusation. Jesus is about holiness in a culture of licentiousness. Jesus is about faith in a culture of secularism. Jesus is about hope and a culture of fear. Jesus is about love and a culture of hate. So the question is, are we following the God with spit on his face? Are we following the God with spit on his face? 
moving into the messiness to take on the scandal, the offense, the shock, the disdain, the curiosity, and the wonder of the compassion of Jesus. Now, you may be here and you may be reluctant to even be here today. Can I just pause for a moment and just say, I'm really glad you're here. I want to speak to you for a minute. Not long. I'm really glad you're here, but maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Craig, what promise can you give if I open up this emotional armor? How do I know God won't break my heart or they won't break my heart again? Well, listen to me. I got to be honest with you. I can only tell you about God's heart for you. And I want to tell you, following Jesus is dangerous. So if you're here today and you're looking for safety and protection, do not follow Jesus. He will mess you up to save you from you. If you want it to be neat and nice and fit in a box, you don't want to follow Jesus because he won't fit under any label and he won't fit into any cultural category and he welcomes sinners and offends Pharisees. And I got bad news for you. You and I are both Pharisee and sinner. So some days we're going to be welcome and other days we're going to be disciplined. But I will tell you that his heart for you is one of longing and love and compassion. I wish I could offer people certainty. God's heart meets our uncertainty. And that's all I can offer people. Like I don't offer people an ideology or theology. I can't make promises like that. But I can tell you, following Jesus is just like getting married. My wife and I, March or May 19th, 2007. Faith is like a relationship. Here we are standing in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Y'all, I had just made it out of the teenage years. I'm a buck 45 soaking wet. Times have changed. Macaroni and cheese is good. And so I'm standing there on the altar. My wife and I are looking at each other in the eyes. Oh, and then we just give these lofty vows like forsaking all others. Like, oh, dear God, people in my family live till 95. <laughs> you know, this is a long time. I'm only 21. You know, it's like, oh, dear God, that's just the raw genetic material, too. That's not even biotechnology. You know, it's like, ooh, I might live to 120. And then we would make the next statement forsaking all others, keep yourself under her as long as you both shall live. I'm like, as long as I both shall live. That's scary, isn't it? But you know what I said? I said, babe, I trust you and I love you, so I'm all in and we'll just hash it out as we go. That's exactly what faith is like. Oh, it's so scary to think you're going to follow him the rest of your life, pick up crosses, deny yourself. But I trust you and I love you, so I'm all in and we'll hash it out as we go, Jesus. I can't give you a set of information. I can only give you a person. I can't give you an ideology or theology. I can only give you a person. His name's Jesus. It's trust in a person. But I do know God's heart for you. You know what God's heart for you is? This is what Isaiah said. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. You're here today and you say, Pastor Craig, well, what is God's disposition to me? Let me tell you what it is. Right there in your doubt, right there in your inability to open up your emotional armor, God is literally on the edge of his seat ready to get up and show you compassion. His heart wants to meet your uncertainty with his compassion. We see it in the prodigal son. The father wants to run and meet the son when he makes his way back home. Here's the image, y'all. We always love to pontificate and think about the image of man kissing God's feet, but what about God kissing man's feet? He longs to be gracious. He longs to stand up and show you compassion. So what does that mean for you? It means for you and me that we have to be faithful to take the middle way. Come on, team. What that means is that we, in the midst of our culture, have to constantly keep our eyes on Jesus. Our eyes on Jesus. Because it's so easy in the cross pressures of the buffered self to keep our eyes on every cross pressure, every current, every challenge. But watch this, simple illustration. If I'm going to balance this on my hand, just a simple step ladder. If I'm going to balance this on my hand, I'm going to have to, watch, put it on my hand. Watch what I'm doing. Not one time 
that I put my eyes on the base. I put my eyes on the top. You want to know how you make it in this depraved generation? You keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll finally begin to balance out your marriage. See, if I'm just trying to balance out my marriage, I never make it. But if I keep my eyes on Jesus on the top, I'll find out how to balance everything else in my life. Well, Craig, I don't know how to balance my kids right now and, and parenting. Well, keep your eyes on Jesus. If I ever take my eyes and put it on the base, I'm never going to balance it. But God says today, if you'll keep your eyes on me, keep your eyes on the top, you'll find out how to balance relationships. You'll find out how to balance life and living in your job. You'll find out how to balance parenting the kids that God has given you. Why? But your eyes have to be at the top. Eyes have to be on Jesus. Who doesn't condemn? Who doesn't condone? But shows compassion. It's the way forward, church. It's the way forward. Are we going to embody the compassion of Jesus? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that's here. Thank you, Jesus, for the power of your presence and the pledge of your presence. I thank you, God, that you literally through the person of Jesus have risen in heaven to show us compassion. You stood up because you longed to show compassion. For those in this room today that are debating whether to open the emotional armor and allow Jesus to be Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would in these moments we have together give them the ability to trust, place within them a heart of faith as they repent, put their trust in you. Pray that a new life would be infused within them. They would believe. You said the just shall live by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. That Jesus, you're more compassionate than we ever dreamed. We are more condemned than we ever imagined, but we're more loved than we ever imagined. That God, your love for us opens wide your heart. That out of your heart flows streams of living water that enables us to be connected so that we can then live our lives unreservedly, God. Recklessly extravagant with the love we've received because our source is not ourself. Our source is you, Jesus. So let that compassion, the compassion of the Lord Jesus, be ours through a gift of grace. Pour into our hearts the love of God. Shed abroad in our hearts that we would be changed thereby. God, help us to move away from the temptation to condemn or condone, to condemn and have mean-spiritedness or have concession and celebrate. And help us to move forward with compassion, to call people up and out of dysfunction because of the grace of God, to stand them on the solid foundation of your love and to see transformation happen in and through our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.